Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. The subject of today's discussion is why are North and South India so different on gender? I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans at King's College London. Let's kick in. So everyone knows that Southern and Northern India are very different in culture, language and socioeconomic development. But the most dramatic regional disparity maybe in gender relations. Southern and Northeastern women are more likely to survive infancy, be educated, marry later, choose their own husbands, interact more closely with their husbands, bear fewer children, own more assets, exercise more control over their dowry, socialize with friends, move more freely in their communities and work alongside men. Whereas in North, In northwest India, women are much more constrained and sex ratios are far higher. Education, paid work and age are all associated with greater economic and physical autonomy, no question. But even if a woman completes secondary school, she is still less likely to choose her husband if she lives in the north. Region is a consistently strong predictor of female survival, literacy, autonomy, employment, and independent mobility. A woman with the exact same household wealth, caste, religion, will likely have more autonomy if she lives in the South. These regional trends do not hold for all aspects of gender, however. Female political representation and independent property ownership are low nationwide. Now, these regional differences have deep roots. In 1900, girls were more likely to survive infancy, go to school and marry later if they lived in the South or Northeast. Going back further to 1800, 90% of recorded sati occurred in Bengal, with far fewer in Madras and Bombay. When Madras was ravaged by famine in 1876, sex ratios remained even. But in Punjab's famine, Of 1896, little girls died disproportionately. 1880, girls in Kerala and Karnataka married at 15 or 16. Rajasthan took another century to catch up. Maharashtra ran their own journals to discuss women's lives and social reforms. Rather than passively accept employment discrimination, they organised. When Marathi women travelled to Calcutta, they were struck by marked differences in gender relations. And I quote... A woman can scarcely stand in the presence of her relatives, much less before her husband. Her face is always veiled. She is not allowed to speak to any man, much less laugh with him, remarked Anandibai Joshi, staying in Calcutta. Whenever she went to the bazaar alone, Anandibai was pelted with stones. And many Bengalis bitterly opposed the Age of Consent Bill of 1891, proposing to raise girls' age of consent to 12. So what explains India's gender divergence? Uh, In this podcast, I'd like to review the existing literature on poverty, colonialism, matrilineal, cousin marriage, conquest and purdah, labour-intensive cultivation and ancestral crop yields. So is the North more patriarchal because it's poorer? Poverty can thwart progress towards gender equality. Poor girls usually quit school early, bear many children, become burdened with caregiving. 
then struggle to accumulate the capital, knowledge and networks to challenge dominant men. So, does poverty explain India's gender divergence? Well, some northern states like Uttar Pradesh and Bihar are very poor. But expenditure is also low among many northeastern hill tribes. Yet women maintain a relatively high status, move freely in their communities and have long been integral to shifting cultivation. Haryana and Punjab, meanwhile, are two of the richest states in India with the worst child sex ratios, 830 and 846 girls per thousand boys. Sex ratios are actually worsening in the northwest alongside economic growth. Moreover, regardless of household income, a woman is less likely to have been to school if she lives in the North. Nowadays, the North does not perform badly on literacy, but the gender gap in education is 26% in the North, 9% in the South. Female education is improving in the North, and we might expect more skilled women to gain economic autonomy, expand their networks, broaden their horizons, demonstrate equal competence in socially valued domains, support elderly parents, and become valued as providers. That's certainly what's happening in patrilineal China and Taiwan. But not so much in India. Regardless of their qualifications, rural women tend to retreat from the labour force when their families are economically secure, especially in the north. Rural women gain status by not having to work. So, counterintuitively, women in wealthier families actually have less physical and economic autonomy. India's gender divergence in sex ratios, employment and autonomy is clearly not a function of wealth. Rather, local gender norms mediate responses to economic growth. Okay, so let's consider another hypothesis. Did colonialism's impact on gender vary geographically? Several ways in which colonialism might have compounded India's gender divergence. Via inheritance rights, progressive reforms, caste, land tenure, or indirect rule. Uh, Let's first consider inheritance rights. Some argue that colonialism compounded patriarchy by enabling Brahmin elites to codify Hindu law, which was then upheld by upper caste judges and had the net effect of curtailing female inheritance. Before colonialism, disputes had been settled by local village or caste councils. Shastric prescriptions concerning marriage, divorce and inheritance were not necessarily practiced by tribal communities or lower castes. Medieval temple inscriptions in Andhra Pradesh, uh, Tamil Nadu and Karnataka suggest that women occasionally gifted land. This implies female ownership. But, as Bina Agarwal notes, wealthy women's pious acts could have just been a special category, exempt from patrilineal strictures. As she concludes, there is very little evidence to suggest Hindu women typically owned and controlled immovable property before colonialism. Brahmin interpretations of scripture vary geographically. Under the Bengal presidency, they cemented one type of law which permitted widows' inheritance, and in Madras and Bombay, it was another which proscribed widows' inheritance. Regional differences 
long predate the Raj. Now, the colonial codification could have worsened women's inheritance rights in the South, but that cannot explain why women now have more autonomy in the South. So let's consider another hypothesis, progressive reforms. Women's bodies became a battleground during colonialism. British imperialists cast themselves as saviours. Indian liberals sought social reform, but under their control, while conservatives wanted to protect tradition from external attacks. Now, female education was increasingly championed by educated, middle-class Indian nationalists. It symbolised respectability and refinement without jeopardising women's place in the home. Learned men published numerous critiques of polygamy, child marriage and purdah. In the late 19th century, Indian liberals and women's organisations campaigned for social reform. The Central Legislative Assembly passed several emancipatory acts prohibiting sati, child marriage, female infanticide, raising the age of consent and allowing widow remarriage. These issues were all debated, irrespective of imperialism. Over, feminist critique and mobilisation were strongest in places that were already more gender equal. The Women's Indian Association was founded in Madras. The All India Women's Conference was established in Maharashtra. Ten years in, 10,000 members were organising for change. In Tamil Nadu, women joined the Dravidian movement and debated important social reforms. Participants at the first self-respect conference held near Madras in 1929 demanded equal property rights for men and women. Their second conference pushed for female employment in the army and police. Women first won the right to be elected in Madras. 1921. Bengali women agitated for the right to vote that same year, but were defeated on the grounds this would extend suffrage to prostitutes. Women also joined the revolutionary struggle for sovereignty. Turnout was far higher in Bombay than Bengal. Again, feminist mobilisation was strongest in places that were already more gender equal. Now let's consider another hypothesis, caste. The caste system influences gender relations in three important ways. One, upper caste purity and prestige have been preserved through female seclusion, prohibiting polluting sexual access, as highlighted by Uma Chakravarti and many others. Upwardly mobile families gain status by following suit, curbing women's independent mobility in pursuit of new economic opportunities though there is considerable jatty-level variation. Number two, compliance is motivated by fear of social sanction. Men preserve their honour, that in Urdu, by policing female kin, for rumours of misconduct would soil the family name. Caste panchayats, as assemblies of older men, are extremely powerful in rural areas, overseeing women's sexuality and reproduction, as detailed by Prem Chowdhury and others. If a woman rejects an arranged marriage, the caste panchayat may severely fine her family, or even outcast them, prohibiting future marriages, cutting off their social networks and sources of mutual insurance. An entire lineage may be alienated and expelled from the village because of one daughter's misdeeds. This heightens the cost of non-compliance and forestalls exposure to alternatives. Social sanctions heighten the cost of non-compliance. Together with rural isolation, this limits exposure to more egalitarian alternatives. 
three, upper-caste men's political and economic dominance enables impunity for sexual violence against Dalit women, most recently and notably in Uttar Pradesh. Now, genetic data suggests that women's sexuality and reproduction have been strictly policed by tightly knit caste groups for millennia. Caste endogamy is truly ancient. In Andhra Pradesh, there are castes that have been marrying within their castes for over 2,000 years, allowing no genetic mixing. Yet they've lived in close proximity to other castes, yet maintain strict social isolation. So caste is not a new phenomenon. Indian women's sexuality and reproduction has been policed by caste-based kin groups for millennia. That said, colonialism may have affected gender relations by enriching upper castes and compounding inequalities. Let me, let me suggest why. It's through land tenure and indirect rule. So colonial rule varied across India, and perhaps this might be the source of India's gender divergence. Banerjee and Iyer have attempted to categorise distinct judicial and administrative systems. In some parts of India, the British delegated authority to zamindars, landlords. Ever since the Mughals, the zamindar had served as intermediaries, collecting revenue, controlling watchmen, police and courts. In other parts of India, the British sought to increase colonial coffers by taxing individuals directly, or by vesting land rights in a group of villages. Banerjee and Iyer find that in Zamindari areas, the colonial state spent less on public goods. But their crude schema is strongly contested. In practice, there seems to have been significant inter-regional variation, and with a more fine-grained village-level analysis, these effects can disappear. Colonialism does appear to have impaired governance in other ways, though. Weaker state capacity under colonialism is associated with fewer public goods today. Direct colonial rule seems to have worsened outcomes. Areas formerly under native control have more schools, more health centres and more roads in the post-colonial period. The British also increased caste inequalities in areas under their control by granting property rights to landlords, reifying and ranking castes, as well as installing bureaucracies dominated by upper castes. Brahmins monopolised the highest offices under the Madras presidency, just as they had served in the upper echelons of the Mughal regimes. But these corrosive colonial governance regimes do not correlate with India's gender divergence. Female literacy was highest across the South, notwithstanding different degrees of imperialism. In sum, there is very little evidence that colonialism contributed to India's gender divergence. Even if elites entrench patriarchal interpretations of scripture in Bombay and Madras, southern women are still more autonomous than their compatriots in Bengal. Mobilization and implementation of progressive reforms was strongest in areas that were already more gender equal. Caste have policed female sexuality for millennia, as revealed by genetics. Direct colonial rule may have worsened caste-based inequalities for sure, 
but this is not correlated with contemporary gender relations. Even if native rule improved public goods provision, such as school and clinics, access is mediated by pre-existing gender hierarchies, circumscribing women's independent mobility. And where daughters are disposable, sonograms, as in access to health clinics, are just used to select male progeny. Clearly, we need to go further back. Okay, so what about matrilineal? Well, I think it helps, but it can't really explain regional divergence. A few Indian communities are matrilineal. Cassie and Garros in northeasterly hills, Nairs and Bunts on the southwesterly coast. In these matrilineal communities, men govern, but women remain relatively autonomous. They may move freely in their communities, enjoy premarital sexual freedoms, marry later, more easily divorce, and often live in their natal village. With fewer restrictions on their movements, now girls rushed to school and married later. Kerala led the way in female literacy. But matrilineal communities are a minority and cannot explain India's regional divergence. Tamil Nadu, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh women report even greater freedom of movement and labour force participation despite being patrilineal. Let's consider another hypothesis. Has cousin marriage advanced gender equality in the South? Many South Indians idealise cross-cousin marriage. Southern women are more likely to be surrounded and supported by familiar family. Contrast, Northern women marry outsiders to become vulnerable strangers in their husband's village, argued Dyson and Moore in a famous paper with over 2,000 citations. Are you persuaded? I'm not. Well, gender gaps in education are larger in communities where brides move out, as is common in the North. Perhaps parents invest less in daughters if they do not anticipate strong, enduring ties of mutual support and aid. But neither East nor West India have much cousin marriage, yet their gender gaps in education are almost as small as the South. Cousin marriage might conceivably foster support for female inheritance as assets remain within the male lineage. Indeed, southern states were forerunners in permitting daughters' inheritance rights and making women co-partners of joint family property. But these new laws actually exacerbated cousin marriage. There is evidence that women from communities that allow intra-village marriage are more likely to move freely, travel alone, earn cash income and participate in self-help groups. But this is merely a correlation. As far as I am aware, no one has traced the causal process by which endogamy enhances autonomy. Something else in those communities may be advancing gender equality. And in practice, there is no correlation between a bride's contact with her natal family and her proclivity to contribute to decisions, enjoy freedom of movement or access savings. In 1901, fewer girls were missing from villages that extolled cross-cousin marriage. Perhaps parents did not resent dowry costs if they anticipated reciprocity and cross-sharing within the lineage. 
But there could be another explanation. Dowries were always more common in Rajasthan, Bihar and Punjab, but rare in Tamil Nadu, Karnataka and West Bengal. Lower caste jatis in Tamil Nadu actually used to favour bride price. This reflects southern women's importance in wet rice agriculture and mitigated the costs of daughters. Indeed, there are many other features of Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka that could have enhanced gender equality. And in the absence of those conditions, cousin marriage does not seem to advance gender equality. Consider the most patriarchal place in the world, the Middle East and North Africa. Present marriage is arranged by a third of MENA families. It ensures that female inheritance under Islam does not fragment patrilineal assets. Bound by cousin marriage, kinship groups share honour collectively. A woman's impropriety shames the entire lineage. MENA women are thus veiled, monitored and secluded. Cousin marriage reinforces kinship, limits her autonomy, and is associated with lower rates of female employment. Cousin marriage is also practiced by Muslims in North India and Pakistan, where women's autonomy is strictly curtailed. So, in my mind, southern women may have gained autonomy despite cousin marriage, not because of it. A woman can be surrounded by her kin, but not necessarily more autonomous or better protected. Honour killings are a case in point, committed by brothers, uncles and fathers. So personally, I am not convinced that cousin marriage begets gender equality. Now let me consider another hypothesis for the regional divergence. Conquests and purda in North India. Pada and honour cultures emerged in the harsh geographical terrain of North Arabia. Mountains, deserts and semi-arid steppes made settled agriculture impossible, except, except in the oases. Nomadic pastoralists moved in search of water, often fighting for new pastures or allowing their animals to graze in a farmer's field and thieving their silver. Razia raids were a constant threat. Arabia also hosted long-distance traders connecting the Mediterranean, Africa, Mesopotamia and India. Men were integral to pastoralism and trading, venturing on dangerous marches, handling camels and large oxen, often facing hand-to-hand combat. In the absence of a strong state to police law and order, tight-knit kin vigilantly protected their assets. To preserve their honour, tribes often restricted women's mobility. Veiling and seclusion symbolised wealth and status in pre-Islamic Byzantine and Sassian Iran. Muslim women, Muslim rulers, sorry, Muslim rulers decreed wider adoption. Veiling became integral to honour in large oasis settlements where women likely counted strangers. Muslim regimes then raided, pillaged and controlled India for over 600 years. Mughal rule was concentrated in North India on the upper Gangetic plain. Rivers facilitated Akbar's easterly conquests to Bengal's fertile soils while the Deccan constrained progress to the south. Women were captured in raids. When uh, Dahir was killed in the 8th century, his wife and daughters were sent to Damascus as sex slaves. 
Affluent households, merchants and cultivators often kept a few female slaves. Female slaves, as Ira Mukherjee details, were used as mules. Farming, fetching water, smearing cow dung on the floor, disposing of human waste and for sex. If beautiful or talented, these women were sold as concubines for nobles. In the 10th century, the Rajputs of Rajasthan, who were subject to early and sustained attacks, started practicing women's self-immolation to prevent military capture and preserve their honor. During Islamic rule, North Indian society became more gender segregated. Since the ruling class practiced purdha, it came to signify status. Upwardly mobile families followed suit to symbolize respectability in an age of insecurity. New Hindu-Muslim converts were especially zealous in their performance of purdha. With Islamization and the adoption of the plough, East Bengali women once integral to wet rice cultivation, slowly retreated to winnowing, soaking, parboiling and husking within the confines of the farmyard. Now, India's caste-based society was already concerned by purity. If women were degraded by outsiders, male kin lost honour. Women concealed their bodies, lowered their gaze, averted their eyes, were chaperoned and, if they could afford to, refrained from mixing with strangers. Segregation amplified gender inequalities. Female education dwindled. Men dominated the public sphere. To preserve their purity and symbolise a ruler's prestige, elite Rajput women were physically secluded. They were also absent from cultural representations. There are hundreds of portraits of Rajput noblemen gifted to strengthen alliances, displayed to show the male lineage and affirm men's role in history. But there are no portraits of real, named Rajput women, or very few at least. Even when Rajput women commissioned portraits, they did not do so of themselves. They upheld patriarchal norms. As art historian Molly Aitken reveals, elite Rajput women were made invisible. Gender segregation persists through widely shared expectations of social sanction. In the 19th century, in the, sorry, in the 1970s, fathers in rural Delhi feared that education could jeopardize their daughter's marriage prospects. Others family, other families might think that she was no longer obedient. Girls themselves often envied peers who had the freedom to explore and learn about the wider world. But they could hardly go against their father's will. On the Hindi belt, a bride expresses her her resentment via song. Oh, father, I won't sing this, but these are the words. Oh, father, you brought uh, my brother up to be happy. Oh, father, you have brought your son up to give him your house. And you have left a, a cage for me. That's translated from Prem Chowdhury. In Benares in the 1980s, neighbours reported women's improper conduct, telling relatives what they saw, scrambling her sister's marriage prospects. In rural Haryana, women who did not veil were often scolded for it threatened family honour. Honour killings occur when a woman's impropriety disgraces her entire lineage. Her action had soiled her honour. I quote, 
from a Poonam's father in North Delhi after his brother had shot her in broad daylight. Growing up, observing their families and communities, children learn that defiance is heavily punished. These patriarchal norms persist over generations as parents teach their children to... Sorry. These patriarchal norms persist over generations as parents teach their daughters to speak softly, show restraint and respect elders. Even if northern women complete secondary school, they are still less likely to choose their husbands. Northern women's autonomy is constrained through arranged marriage and the watchful eyes of joint families, which are much more common in the North. Though young professional women may wish to venture out, northern cities are dangerous places. In Delhi and Haryana, young women experience relentless sexual harassment, especially in overcrowded public transport and from unemployed male youth. Women fear for both their physical safety and their reputations, as observers see them going out and draw inferences about their impurity. Delhi along with Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, consistently ranks as the most unsafe place for women. This fear of rape curbs female labour force participation across India. This effect is even greater for women who practice purdu, or if they're beaten for leaving the house without permission. Female labour force participation is lowest on the Indo-Gangetic plane, where Muslim rule was concentrated. It is also much more gender segregated. Most Delhi women working in manufacturing do so within their own home, with scant opportunities to expand their networks, organize, gain skills or autonomy. In Lucknow, women, working women are concentrated in subcontracted work and as unpaid labor in family enterprises. They work. Yes, but they rarely interact with outsiders. They remain dependent on male intermediaries. If women are secluded, they're less likely to collectively critique and challenge their subordination. So women workers in Haryana do not always question gender wage gaps, for they presume men to be more competent. As a 19th century Haryana saying goes, Women as cattle bound, working and enduring all. Most women in the Indo-Gangetic plain eat after men have been served. This bias exacerbates sex ratios via female malnutrition. In sum, gender segregation became more widespread under Islamic rule. Men continue to dominate public life, while women are more rooted in their families, seldom gathering to resist structural inequalities. But I must qualify the impact of the Islamic invasions. First, even before the raids, Purda was observed by a few royal households in the north. Second, other patriarchal practices like prepubescent marriage, proscriptions on widow remarriage, and sati long predated the invasions, especially among upper castes in the north. 
Those and the mog- the moguls were actually the moguls actually criticized Sati. Some even banned it. Akbar even insisted on female consent, though other mogul rulers remained quiet as they feared revolt. Third, despite a shared culture of Purda, women's labor force participation varies across the north. These differences may be rooted in traditional agriculture. So here is my next section, if you're still with me. Female labor force participation is higher in states with traditions of labor-intensive cultivation. Before the modern era, almost everyone produced their own food. And the system for producing food was the most fundamental way in which gender ideologies became entrenched. Where women's contribution to farming was relatively significant, such as via shifting cultivation and wet paddy fields, they have higher labour force participation today, where men were integral to pastor, uh, production in pastoralism, wheat fields and plough cultivation, women stayed at home. Over the centuries, gender divisions of labour became normalised. In the forested hills of northeast India, women have always been integral to shifting cultivation. Women's long-standing predominance in the public sphere has enhanced their physical and economic autonomy. Daughters are valued as providers, so sex ratios remain even. Elsewhere in India, cultivation is less labour-intensive, so women are not always needed in the fields. Wheat has long been grown for centuries on the fertile alluvial Indo-Gangetic plain. Cultivation is not terribly labour-intensive, though cereals must still be processed, shelled and ground. This lowers demand for female labour force participation, female labour in the field, and heightens its importance at home. Rice cultivation is much more labour-intensive. It requires the construction of tanks and irrigation channels, planting, transplanting and harvesting. Women are needed in the fields. Rice is the staple crop in the South. Over the centuries, women's work became normalised in rice-growing regions and thus persists outside agriculture. Urban, urban female labor force part, urban female workforce participation is 11% higher in districts more conducive to rice rather than wheat cultivation under rain-fed and low input conditions, finds at Gautam Hazarika. Right, so these are the ancestral conditions. In places with centuries of rice, you have more women working in towns today. Interestingly, also, soil texture varies across India. Southern districts have stickier, clay soils. These are unsuitable for deep tillage. Farming is then incredibly labour-intensive, with endless transplanting, fertilising and weeding. These jobs are traditionally done by women. Northern districts have more loamy soils, suitable for deep tillage. Men harness draft animals to prepare the land. This heightens the importance of male labour and lessens the importance for female weeding. Eliana Carenza finds lower female labour force participation and more uneven sex ratios in districts with more loamy soils. The market participation has fallen across India over the past three decades. But... It has fallen the least in the South. This reflects women's higher labour market commitment. 
type of work also varies across regions. Contributing family worker is the dominant type of work in all regions, except southern states, where women are more likely to work as casual laborers. Southern women are most likely to work for non-kin. This is consistent with women's greater freedom of movement. So over the centuries, northern men's roles as breadwinners became ingrained. Men went out to the fields while women remained at home. Thus, even before the invasions, men may have been more important to agricultural production. Dowries are thus paid to the groom's family. Daughters are an economic drain. But crop suitability is not destiny. In other world regions, where agriculture was traditionally male-dominated, women left family farms in search of new economic opportunities. In pre-industrial the American Northwest, women and children were surplus to wheat production. Not needed at home, women responded to new opportunities in manufacturing. By 1832, over 40% of the industrial workforce in the American Northeast was young and female. Surplus female labor was similarly responsive to new opportunities opportunities in wheat-growing medieval Europe. In slack periods, young women and men were a drain on resources. In England, only the firstborn son inherited. His brothers and sisters left to become hired laborers. Likewise, in Latin America, women's participation in farming is usually low, about 20%. They seldom inherit. But Latin American women independently migrated to cities in search of jobs. In East Asia, women pursued factory employment to self-finance their diaries. This occurred in the absence of social constraints. Purda, purity and caste-based policing. My point is that even if you have environments, even if you have traditional agriculture with low female labour force participation, that doesn't seem to entail low female labour force participation in other places absent those constraints. Right, now let's consider another hypothesis. Semi-arid soils and sex ratios. Here's a fascinating finding. In districts with historically low yields, girls are disproportionately likely to die. Zerika Jar and Zaranji have mapped ancestral yields per hectare assuming it was rain-fed with low input. So what they're trying to get in is trying to understand what yields would have been like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's why they assume rain-fed and low input. Such districts are associated with worse sex ratios today. That's controlling for soil texture, religious and caste composition, monthly expenditure, and contemporary rainfall. And those, those kinds of districts are in India's northwest. You can look on the blog to see the maps. There's certainly a correlation between historically low yields and contemporary sex ratios. We can speculate several possible causal mechanisms. I don't pretend to know the exact one. Sun preference is widespread across India. Sons are breadwinners, support elderly parents, perform ancestral rites and continue the lineage. As a popular saying in Haryana, recorded by Prem Chowdhury, goes, Who can be satisfied without rains and suns? Both are necessary for cultivation. When resources are scarce, families prioritise sons. Strategic investment in sons 
may have been normalised through recurrent famines. India is not unique in this regard. China is similarly patrilineal and patrilocal. Historically, when Chinese families struggled to survive due to cholera, famine or drought, they drowned girls at birth or sold them as slaves, prostitutes or child brides. Perhaps these difficult decisions seldom arose in India's south and northeasterly fertile souls. Given a more benign geography, letting girls die never became part of the culture. An alternative hypothesis is that pastoralism was historically pervasive across the northwest India, and this entrenched patriarchal norms. Indeed, pastoral societies tend to be more gender segregated. Men take the herd to pasture, while women stay at home tending to newborn animals and processing milk into ghee. Men may leave for a few days searching for new pasture. If men cannot easily observe women's whereabouts, they may worry about paternity and try to police female sexuality. Analyzing societies across the world, Anke Becker finds that pre-industrial societies that were more dependent on pastoralism had stronger sun preference and are more likely to believe in male superiority. These effects persist today. Women whose ancestors subsisted on pastoralism report less control over their sexuality and greater preference for sons, which is reflected in uneven sex ratios. Pastoral groups are also disproportionately patrilineal and patrilocal. Rajasthan continues to be a major producer of livestock, wool and dairy. Across the northwest, there are numerous pastoral communities such as the Raika. Raika men head out while women tend to veil their faces, eat after everyone else and refrain from conversing with strangers, or at least in a low voice, from a distance. Jats, that is a 33 million strong, predominating in Punjab, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Rajasthan, Delhi and Haryana, were historically pastoral. Now, here is a really interesting point. In Indian districts with historically low yields, women are no less likely to work, but they are less likely to survive. Arid Rajasthan exceeds the national average for rural female labour force participation. In Haryana, colonial officials observed that women work as hard as the men, if not harder. Aside from ploughing, driving carts or digging, there was no work, no agricultural labour that a Jatni, that is a woman, did not do. Women sow, weed, harvest, thresh and maintain irrigation channels. But regardless of women's contributions, men are prioritised. So why has women's importance in traditional agriculture not curbed sun preference? Monica Dasgupta emphasizes patrilineal exogamous kinship. And I quote, Perhaps the most important determinant of Punjabi parents' attitudes towards girls is the fact that married women can do almost nothing for their natal kin. End quote. She notes that many castes in North India will not accept food or water in their married daughter's new home. Any hospitality must be generously paid for. Moreover, this lineage is entirely traced through the male line, as reflected in the 19th century Rajput portraits I mentioned earlier. 
So this institution of exogamous patrilineality, where women move out to live with their husbands, is pervasive across North India. And, as Anke Becker shows, it is strongly associated with ancestral pastoralism. Pastoralism may have also influenced India's caste system. Brahmins now dominate business, public service, politics, the judiciary and universities. Upper caste purity and prestige has been preserved through female seclusion, prohibiting polluting sexual access. These patriarchal norms may be rooted in ancient livelihoods. Brahmins shared genetic data with ancient Iranians and steppe pastoralists. Brahmins also comprise a larger share of the population in North India and only 3% in Tamil Nadu. Over the centuries, male superiority may have become entrenched. Generations of North Indian women have been breastfed for shorter periods, given less nutritious foods and tardily taken to clinics. Medieval Rajputs, predominating in Northwest India, highly extolled sati and they quote, it is a small thing to kill a woman in a North India in an Indian village. Um, that was a quote, and I'm quoting a college-educated Jat, a Punjab farmer in 1958. In arid Rajasthan and the surrounding deserts, women learn that they are valued less. Son preference persists even as incomes rise in now thriving Punjab and Haryana. But 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 but. but. Ancestral crop yields only explain 12% of the total variation in sex ratios. They cannot explain why so many girls are missing on the fertile Indo-Gangetic floodplain. Additional factors contributing to sun preference include patrilineal exogamous kinship, men's roles as providers supporting elderly parents, and the high cost of dowries. Bride givers in Rajasthan and Punjab traditionally paid dowries. Now, dowries have escalated enormously with economic growth and social stratification. Before 1930, only 38% of Indian households engaged in dowry payments. By 1970, this had increased to 88%. The real value of dowry payments tripled from 1930 to 1975. And that's a calculation by Gaurav of and Jeffrey Weaver. Southern families are increasingly paying dowries to secure upward mobility. Husbands may even beat their new brides to coercively extract larger dowries, since she's unable to divorce. Many rural Tamil parents now perceive girls as economic burdens. This effect on sex ratios is compounded by pressure by low fertility and access to sex-selective technology, both of which are correlated with wealth. Thus, in some parts of Tamil Nadu, the sex ratio has actually worsened. Even though dowry payments have increased nationwide, dowry murders are clustered in north-central states, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar. Control over dowries also varies geographically. In Tamil Nadu, brides often keep a portion for themselves, whereas in Uttar Pradesh, assets are usually handed over to in-laws. The north-south divide persists. In some, India is marked by a gender divergence. For centuries, northern men have been fundamental to household survival, entitled to scarce resources, and preserve their honour through female seclusion. 
This is a legacy of wheat cultivation, deep tillage, pastoralism, patrilineal patrilocal kinship, caste-based policing and invasions. Northern parents increasingly support their daughter's education, but this is primarily to, to improve their marriage prospects, not to work outside the home. In Rajasthan, female labour force participation is relatively high in family farms, but very low in towns where they might mix with non-kin. Ensuing gender segregation entrenches inequalities. It curbs exposure to women demonstrating their equal competence in socially valued domains and inhibits collective critique of patriarchal norms. In southern cities, women are visibly earning money, providing for their families. This is rooted in the historical absence of purdah and labour-intensive cultivation. Paid work is no panacea, though. Given widespread condemnation of divorce and little independent property, wives may feel trapped in abusive relationships. That said, by harnessing their social networks, southern women have organised against discrimination, demanding dignity, safer cities and greater respect. In Mumbai, 33 NGOs mobilised for the right to pee, advocating free, clean and safe toilets for women, asserting their right to public space. Well, that's my understanding of India's gender divergence. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr Alice Evans.